Hello, my name is Daniel Lepschkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. This episode, I connected with Jeff Kripal. He is a professor at Rice University. And when I was reading his book, The Secret Body, which is basically a book about all of his other books, I deeply connected with a few of his areas of interest, including mystical humanism, and also what I like to call metamysticism. Basically, looking at the writings of those who study mysticism as mystical texts themselves. Something I've been thinking a lot about over the years, and my jaw dropped open a little bit when I realized that that's exactly what Kripal had been writing about in his books. So, without further ado, my conversation with Professor Jeffrey Kripal. Jeffrey Kripal, welcome to Reenchantment. Thanks, Daniel. Happy to be here. Now, we have a mutual friend in common, Rabbi Jim Panette, and he's uh, somebody who I met in college and who I've maintained contact with over the years. And in our conversations, he mentioned that he's also uh, a good friend of yours, uh, and he's been kind of poking and prodding and telling me that I should look up your work. And so I've, I finally have, and uh, kind of well, kicking myself that I, I, I didn't take him up on that earlier because you write about so many of the things that, that I find inter- interesting and, and, and vital and I think are at the base of this podcast and then many of the things that I haven't even considered. So I'm very excited to have you here. I'm very excited <laughs> to talk with you. I'm glad, I'm glad you listened to Rabbi Jim and please say hello for me. I've, I've seen Jim mostly here in Houston, but also in a little town in Texas called Round Top for a, for a mutual friend's birthday. So it's, it's been a while, though, since I've mm. seen – well, since I've seen anyone. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic, obviously. Right, right. Yeah, so you are a professor at the Religious Studies Department uh, at Rice University. And am I right that you uh, are one of the main architects of the, the GEM program, program, the Gnosticism, Esotericism, and Mysticism? Yeah, I mean, the real architect of the program is is uh, my colleague April DeCone, but we, we've been building that program for almost 20 years now through a whole series of mechanisms, and it's quite large now and, and quite developed, and, and it's a real focus on Gnosticism, esotericism, and mysticism, and particularly in the history of the West, but also but also globally. Hmm. So yeah, absolutely, and that that's what we do, or that's one of the things we do in the department. Yeah, I, I remember back when I was uh, living in Boston, I uh, met someone, Alan Simon, at Harvard Divinity School, yeah. uh, and he was a friend of uh, or, or a student of yours, and he he was telling me about Rice back then and saying like, oh yeah, they study Gnosticism, they study UFO encounters, they study like uh, all all these different things, and I and I, I didn't realize at the time, but there, he was probably referring mostly to your work only, <laughs> but but. <laughs> Alan was 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 definitely a, a major. A, a, we called him a rally major. That's what we still call him, actually. And then he went on to Harvard and did did an MA or an MDiv there. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a while again, but yeah, he he wasn't just referring to me, by the way. He was referring to the whole department. Yeah. Now there's some there's some very interesting yeah scholars and thinking going going on that I, probably you won't find in most religious studies departments. I mean, you for example, I think just to touch on and introduce some of the work you do. I believe you studied you know tantric traditions. Catholic homoeroticism, science fiction. You, you, your book has is, is littered with references to the X Men uh, and Professor Xavier and the like, and then UFO encounters as looking at them as religious phenomena. So a, a very eclectic. Also, did I miss anything? Is there something that <laughs> that that I missed? <laughs> oh, sure, you missed a lot. I mean, yeah. That, I mean, you're talking. You're referring to a secret body. Which is a which is a book I just I wrote a few years ago, but and the reason I wrote it was to tie all those things together. I, I I realized that those different topics don't necessarily have anything to do with each other, and people would be confused about that list you just ticked off. And so I wanted to write essentially a meta book, a book about all the other books that explains why I got interested in those topics and how actually I think they are all connected. Hmm. So I mean I think that's what intellectuals do is they connect things that don't seem connected essentially now can i ask you in 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 the briefest briefest possible terms what do you see as the the connection the thread that runs through it all the human human yeah those are all human experiences and as I, i often joke i really I've never, I've never encountered a religious experience that wasn't a human experience. I mean, that's what that's what ties it all together. Really, right. is is the human? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, know, I agree, and I think that's as as a humanist myself, as, as someone who who I, I don't necessarily uh, put much. I'm, I'll say I'll put. I'm very skeptical of the supernatural, but I'm not at all skeptical about these experiences as essential to what it is to be a human being. And they are real experiences. Mysticism, tantra, gnosis these these are different states of mind and different and important ones to understand and experience. So I guess my first question for you is. And I know you you talk a little bit about it in the book, but how to give people a sense of where you lie, I guess, metaphysically, you you've been taught some critics uh, have batched you with the new atheists like Dawkins and Dennett. But and you while you say you appreciate the. Yeah, and, and you and you say in the book that you appreciate the robust rationalism that 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 the new atheists bring, but at the end you you think that what is it? You had a quote that you think the most objective that most objective religious experiences are in the end forms of our own mind blowing consciousness revealing itself to itself. So I guess like if you're not if you're not exactly a new atheist and you're not exactly a standard believer. What is that third thing that you you might identify as? Well, I don't identify as anything. I mean, and I always want to throw the question back and as why why do people want us to identify? Why why do we need a name attached to ourselves? What what's this what's this impulse to be part of a, a group or to insist that some marker names us and and locates us. So I'm 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 suspicious of that, Daniel. <laughs> fair fair enough. Yeah, and I'm also I I feel homeless, and I I've, I've decided that 
And by homeless, of course, I don't mean I, I, I live on the street. I mean, I, I don't have a religious tradition or, or a particular cultural tradition in which I feel particularly at home and can identify with and can say I'm that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't say that's not a bragging point. It's a kind of, it's, it's a form of jealousy. It's a form of loss. It's a form of, of exile, if you will. But I find it creative and mm-hmm. I find it productive. And I find it honest. And it's also future-oriented. I mean, I really, I see I see what I do and I see what a lot of people do as forming some future worldview or some future culture that doesn't exist yet. And and I'm okay with that. And I'm sure I'll I'll die someday without without such a home or a worldview. But the the bricks will be there to to build to build the house for for others. And that that's that's enough. Yeah. Hmm. Now I I identify with that as well. I was recently having a conversation with some friends, and if I, I guess, well, there was there was something that I, I heard a, a Unitarian Universalist once say it was that every time that he, somebody asks him if he believes in God, he he doesn't say yes or no. He says, "Well, do you have?" an hour. Let's sit, let's sit down and let's let's talk about it. And I, and I think more and more, I, f- I feel like that's a wise way to go because giving a, a simple label like atheist or believer or agnostic invites assumptions and invites misunderstanding. Yeah. And of course, I've used lots of labels to name myself. I mean, I'm not afraid of using a label, but, but not, not with any certainty or not with any finality. And I don't, I, I'm certainly not an atheist, by the way. I, so I think it's kind of funny that I was somebody's labeled me a new atheist. I'm not even an atheist, much less a new one. Um, I suppose I'm an atheist in relationship to many people's image of God. That that might be true. I think most images of God are, frankly, idolatrous and and ridiculous and harmful and violent and bigoted, and I don't want anything to do with them. I, so I'm certainly an atheist vis-a-vis those, those images of God, but I certainly do not believe that there is no God or is no ultimate reality. But I don't claim to know what that ultimate reality is. And I think, I think it's rather arrogant of us to claim that we know there is no such thing or we know, we know what it is. I mean, I, I find that really kind of ridiculous. I'm, I'm not an atheist, but I'm also not a believer in what most people think of as God. But that doesn't mean I, I, don't, I don't believe in some form of deity or divinity or ultimate reality. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I think, a quote from the book that I think does does that perspective justice. You, know, you say that what you do believe is that all kind of mediations of metaphysical realities, whatever they are, are local and historical, and so are relative. And when these religious events are made absolute and taken literal as universal truths, then they become illusory and false as a result. So yeah, there yeah, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think I think we're sort of we're edging towards what you call this third thing, or what I call this third thing. I so so any any religious experience, no matter how profound, is ulti- always going to be filtered or mediated by the local culture and the local psyche or the imagination, and so it's always going to be 
relative to the place and time. But that doesn't mean it's entirely relative. The images that the image, one simple image I like to use is the sun, sunlight it can shine through thousands of different stained glass windows. And each of those stained glass windows is telling a story based on a culture or a time period or a particular artist. And all of those colors and forms will all be different. But the light coming through is, is the same light. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting there's nothing there. I'm just suggesting that what is appearing is not what's there. To, to kind of be yeah. clever about it. I mean, this is how I talk to near-death experiencers and people who have profound visionary events. The vision, the visionary encounters are always different, but there's something there within or behind the vision or the encounter. And I want to acknowledge both aspects. I want to acknowledge how it's shaped by history and language and culture, but also how these people might actually be be encountering something. And so to hold those two things in balance is really, really hard for people. They want to believe. In other words, they want to take the imaginal form of the vision and say, this is what was there. Or or they want to just throw it all away and say, oh, it's just imaginary or it was just a dream or something. And I just don't, I find both of those responses implausible. And I, and I want to hold yeah. to that middle realm there. And that's, but that's hard for people. That's really hard for most people to do. Yeah. And I imagine it's hard because it demands, well, a suspension of judgment, an agnosticism about what is really there behind the curtain. Yeah. Yeah. But of course we're there. We're behind the curtain. I mean, that's why I keep saying it's, it's human, but by human, I don't mean in a secular or materialist sense. I mean, I think the human being is, a kind of portal for something, you know, cosmic to, to, to be, to be metaphysical about it. I, I, I think the human is extremely strange and weird and uncanny. And all of these wild religious experiences are all kind of revelations of that uncanniness or that weirdness. So I, when I say think everything's human, I don't mean, I don't mean banality or I don't mean your day to day secular person. I mean, I mean, something really, really strange. Yeah. You know? And I don't think we really understand it. I don't think we understand it. We don't, we don't really know what we are. And, and I, I guess that's a great segue into what you call mystical humanism, which yeah. it's this, I, I guess uh, this religious, the, the idea that religious phenomena, uh, once you try to reduce it to, to human nature, human psychology, he, the human being, and you say, oh, it's all just human well it turns out as you say that it's that's actually the human is irreducible and it's immeasurable and you find the profundity of uh what people used to project out into the sky or or or, or whatnot actually within us or coming through us yeah i mean that's what i call that's what i call the gnostic reversal is that you can reduce everything back to the human but it turns out the human isn't what you thought it was it's it's something vast and, and, and immeasurable and, and cosmic, as I said earlier. And I really mean that, by the way, Daniel. I don't mean that as a metaphor or a piece of poetry. I mean, we are the universe that is conscious. I mean, we, we're here because the universe is here. We are, we are a highly evolved form of the entire cosmos. Hmm. And, and so there's something cosmic about us. And I think the more we recognize that, the, the more we'll will understand who and what we are.
Hmm. Yeah. You you have this notion in the book where you talk about the, the human as two. Uh, so and you talk about it as uh, we're both simultaneously this you know, constructed self or socialized ego. But at the same time, we're also this part of this larger conscious field and you, you call day that is often mythologized and projected outwards and, uh, as God or interjected inwards. Could you, I guess, talk a little bit more about what this complex conscious field is? Is, is it what Carl Jung was talking about with the archetypes and the collective unconscious? Is it something different or more? The archetypes have always left me cold. <laughs> there's, first of all, there's way too many of them and they sound a lot they sound a lot like Carl Jung. They don't sound to me much like what I encounter in the history of religions. Mm-hmm. So the the whole archetype thing has never really worked for me. When he starts talking about the collective unconscious, well, then I think we're a little closer to that field we're talking about. But by the humanist too, what I essentially mean, I don't mean that the human being is two things. I'm I'm not a substance dualist. I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm saying that human beings have these these social egos daniel or jeff and they can interact through language like we're doing now or through social social customs but that 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 ego is sort of sitting within this vast field of consciousness that manifests usually in moments of crisis or danger or death and reveals itself as as vast and, and often as immortal or eternal or, or not even in a body. just It's like extended throughout the whole physical universe. And I simply want to point those moments out and show again and again and again that what the religions do is that they argue the human is two. There's, there's essentially two different forms of the human. There's the ordinary human and there's this vast kind of superhuman that, that often is called God. So I want to leave that open, what that relationship is. And I don't want to define that that field because I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And I can show you hundreds of different manifestations of it in, in, the, in the historical sources, but they're all different because, they're, again, they're all being mediated or translated by that other side of the human, the historical yeah. side, the, the, the cultural uh, side. Right, the different stained glass uh, makers. Yeah, yeah. So the trick of the trick of studying religion is not to just focus on the stained glass, but it's also not to just focus on the sunlight. It's it's to somehow recognize both, and that's what I mean as the humanist too, to recognize the sunlight and the stained glass at the same time. Yeah. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you're working right now on a book about Nietzsche and about the the superhumanities. Does does that how how does that relate to mystical humanism? Uh, is that the source of well, an interesting? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's basically the same thing. I, I basically have one idea, Daniel, and I just keep <laughs> you know winding it up and giving it new names. I mean, then you know, here's another book, but it's really just the same idea in different forms. Yeah, so I'm 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 talking now about what I call the superhumanities, which really are the humanities. So it's reading the same people that we've been reading for a long time, but recognizing that for a lot of these authors, they they didn't think their way to ideas. They were split open. They had these ecstatic states in which they realized or were given their idea. And then they put those, uh, that idea or those ideas down in a, in a, in a text or a book. 
and we're still reading them and we're still arguing over them. But actually the deeper origins of the, of the humanities is not cognitive thought. It's, it's, ecstatic, it's ecstatic religious experience. It's altered states of knowledge. And Nietzsche is a perfect example of this. Because if you read enough Nietzsche, you realize, well, A, there are different Nietzsches. There's an early Nietzsche, a middle Nietzsche, and a late Nietzsche. But particularly the late Nietzsche, after he has his mystical experience near Sils Maria, Switzerland, in the summer of 1881, he, he just kind of flips, basically, changes dramatically. And he starts making all these ecstatic statements about Zarathustra and eternal recurrence and the ubermensch or the superhuman. Could you, could you describe a little bit of what that mystical experience was for him? Well, we don't know. He described it as 6,000 feet above man and time was his description of it right after it happened. But it, it happened in front of a large boulder near a lake up in the mountains in Switzerland. And it was at that moment that he realized what eternal recurrence was or is and also began to articulate in his notebooks this notion of the coming ubermatch or the coming super superhumans. Hmm. And, and then as, you know, the next eight years, 1881 to when he falls ill, falls into madness in January of 89, he becomes increasingly ecstatic and starts to claim his own divinity or deity and identifies with all kinds of gods, all kinds of divine states in his books. It clear as day. You just have to read the books right there. And what I find so astonishing and frankly troubling is that the way the humanities have received Nietzsche is they've focused in on all of his, what he called his naysayings, all of his deconstructions, his his genealogy of morals, for example, his his historicization of all moral and, and cultural claims. And they have absolutely refused to acknowledge his ecstatic claims to divinity or deity or, or the ubermensch. They've dismissed them as forms of madness or as metaphors or as not serious ideas. So I find that, A, wrong, and B, symptomatic of, of the humanities as a whole, which has basically reduced any truth statement to the most depressing thing we can find. And, and, and the ecstatic stuff is just ignored or suppressed. And so that's why the books, it's, not, it's just partly about Nietzsche. It's not really all about Nietzsche. It just uses Nietzsche as one example of what I'm calling the superhumanities. I'll give you another example, just so we, we yeah. can understand what the concept is. So take Aldous Huxley. Mm-hmm. Most people have read one novel of Aldous Huxley, his most depressing book. Brave New World. Um, Brave New World. It's his dystopian novel. It is what he thought in the 1930s or whenever he wrote it. But he actually didn't think that towards the end of his life. He studied mystical literature for decades, also became very interested in parapsychology, very interested in psychedelics. And right before he died, he published his Manifesto, which was a utopian novel called Island, in which he answers Brave New World on every point and sets out this, basically this manifesto on how to create a utopia. And it basically involves using magical mushrooms, basically, to induce, <laughs> induce mystical states in 
adolescents who are coming into adulthood. And, and of course, nobody reads it. <laughs> and yet a lot of people practice it on their own unconsciously, maybe. Uh, a lot right, of adol- adolescents, at least. <laughs> they don't know that one of the greatest English writers of the 20th century actually thought exactly that. That was his most mature conclusion. We identify Huxley with this dystopian novel that he himself rejected. Hmm. And so what I mean by the superhumanities is recognizing that what a figure like Huxley really was about was the superhuman. And the the dystopian novel was a part of the story on its way to that that superhuman vision. But that isn't what Aldous Huxley was about. That's not what he thought. And and so that's that's what I mean by the superhumanities is uncovering the ecstatic, transcendent, incredibly positive moments in the life of intellectuals and thinkers as generative and creative of what they actually thought and not as embarrassing moments of madness or metaphor. Mm, yeah. The, the other topic that I want to get into is something that I call metamysticism. But basically, you, your writings about those authors who have studied mysticism and their work, their academic work, could themselves could itself be considered mystical writing. And so you talk about the French Arabist Louis Massignon and the Romanian historian of religion, Merce Eliade, and then also Gershom Shalom, the, the German-Jewish scholar of Kabbalah. And I, I, I've got a couple of other names that I might might add to the list. Uh, at least for me personally, I found William James and, and his writing to, to, to fall into that category. And it's and maybe even of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's in, in in the ways in he he writes about doesn't write about yeah absolutely so but let's 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 get into this because this is something that I've I remember reading some of these authors in in college and feeling and experiencing their academic thought and their academic writing as magical mystical works uh, that really affected me profoundly and it's it's an an amazing effect that i i've been fascinated with ever since well yeah so the history of mystical literature is the history of intellectuals primarily and what people don't understand is that a lot of history's greatest mystical writers were scholars People like Plotinus, for example, or a lot of the rabbinic authors who created the Kabbalah. I mean, they were they were basically Jewish scholars doing Jewish scholarship and using it to have visionary experiences and to advance their own visionary experience. Meister Eckhart, for example, is probably the greatest of all Catholic mystics, and he was he was a professor. That's why they called him the Meister, the Master, right? I mean, he was literally an academic as, as universities were just getting off the ground. And he was also an administrator of all things, by the way. So these people were themselves intellectuals. And mysticism is essentially the intellectual's religion, if, if I can put it that way. Huh. And the argument I've tried to make is that in the modern world where this category of mysticism, which is what you're calling metamysticism, develops, it develops historically over the last few centuries as a, as a way of trying to think about religious experience in its most intense forms. And these scholars themselves got into this often because of their own mystical experiences. 
And they knew they couldn't talk about those experiences explicitly, but they used them to guide their scholarship and to study the texts they studied and to have the insights that they end up having. And so people like Sho- Sholem's a little tricky because he's a little more distant and cagey about this. But someone like Eliade was was just an open mystic in some way, although even he camouflaged it. He actually talked about camouflaging these experiences, mostly in his literature, in his write, his creative writing. Massignon's a little different again. Jung is different again. James is different again. All of these men, and they're all men in, in the in the early 20th century or the first half, they all code their mystical experiences in journal articles, in private letters, in works of creative fiction. They figure out how to talk about it and yet not talk about it. <laughs> uh, and so that's what my second book was all about, actually. It's called Roads of Excess, Palaces of Wisdom. And the whole book is about essentially the mystical experiences of scholars of mysticism and how they use those to think about mysticism, essentially. And one of them, one of the scholars I look at very intensely there is Elliot Wolfson, who's a dear, dear colleague of mine and probably the most accomplished and erudite scholar of religion of my of my generation almost certainly will not be appreciated for decades but it's astonishing actually and has this very sense this very reading i'm trying to articulate here that medieval kabbalah and the study of medieval kabbalah itself the interpretation that the scholarly act itself is a form of of mystical experience that that interpretation is not some kind of mechanical process. It's not it's not a copying machine or a Xerox machine. It's entering the past in order to change the past, which then changes you, and you enter this lineage of visionary and mystical experience, and you then participate in it as an author yourself. And and so that's very that's very important to Elliot and very much a part of his his his, his, his own oeuvre. And I've tried to articulate that in my own in different ways. I've, I've worked with very different texts and very different communities than he has, but it's a very similar kind of idea. Yeah. And I couldn't help but notice that when in your introduction to The Secret Body, you talk about how occasions where people have read you and your work and have come away with a very similar sort of effect. It was, I think somebody else yeah. called it the, the, the author effect. Yeah. And it, yeah, that's, that same reader, <laughs> that same reader refers to my books as her gateway drugs. They're, 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 psychi- they're sort of psychedelics before psychedelics. Yeah, I mean, I get, I get that response a lot, actually, mm-hmm. like every week now from, from different and, readers. And, and, and why do you think? What I... Well, I'm trying to get at that. I mean, what I tell these readers is, I, I honestly don't think it's me doing this. I think it's you doing it. I think you're experiencing you. And I think the reason you're experiencing you reading me is I'm I'm talking about these experiences openly and without apology. And I'm encouraging you as a reader to take them seriously and so you are. The book, the book has a kind of conjuring effect on you, but only because you want to be conjured. 
You you have to be ready for this, and that's why I call these my super readers. They're they're ready. They're they're ready to do this to themselves. I mean, I have a lot of readers who write me and tell me how I appeared in their dreams. I, I have an incredible life at night, apparently, all over the planet, <laughs> appearing in people's dreams. Now, of course, I don't think I'm doing that. I think that's them using me to do whatever it is they want to do, right? But I always laugh at that, and I always, I always think it's, it's really quite funny. But it's also profound, and, and I... I don't want to dismiss those experiences because I also have the same experience reading particular authors, Daniel. I mean, mm. let me let me tell you a story to kind of this is a, a more simple, conventional example of this, but I want I I had this wonderful graduate student who came to me once and he was really worried that he, he said everything I'm reading I agree with, and I think I'm just a sponge. I don't think I have my own thoughts. I think I'm just, and I said, I said to him, I said, now who's choosing to read the books you're reading? And he said, well, I am. And I said, I think you're reading the authors that you already agree with and you're recognizing your own thought in, in theirs. And I think that's what's happening here. I don't think you're a sponge. I don't, I don't think you're that passive. I think you actually have your own thoughts and that you're drawn to people who mirror back to you those thoughts. Mm. And, and I, think he, I think he found that. I think he was comforted somewhat by that. But I truly believe that. And I think we're, we're most engaged with authors in which, who can act like mirrors to us and we can recognize aspects of ourselves that we weren't admitting, you see? It's yeah. not like... It's not like I have all these thoughts and then I go to an author and say, oh, there they are. No, it's like I go to an author and the author articulates a set of ideas and I'm like, wow, I didn't even know I thought that. Yeah. I didn't even know I agreed with that. And then so you have this kind of, whoa, this kind of rush with this encounter. And, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I think somewhere in, in the book you talk about magical language as language that brings about that which it is about right and and which is exactly what you were describing people people are you're you're writing about mystical experiences people are drawn to that subject these different different kinds of states and then it evokes those same experiences in them yeah yeah it's you you haven't you haven't appeared in my dreams yet jeff but <laughs> but i i wouldn't be surprised i wouldn't be surprised because i've i've been taken by a number of the ideas and, and, and essays that you have in this book yeah well that's 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 why i write to be honest and and try try not to be funny here now i mean I want to provoke. I think a really good writer isn't about convincing you of some kind of logical argument. It's about provoking you. It's about it's about lighting the fire. It's not about filling you with more information or or giving you another logical syllogism to 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 play out. I, I'm not interested in that. I I think it's about inciting new conversations and new ideas. And then you'll take that wherever you take that, Daniel. The reader will take that wherever they will. And that's part of being an author is to recognize you are not in control of your own reception history. 
nor nor should you be <laughs> that that's not that's not your role your role is just to get the conversation going and then it's up to it's up to the readers and 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 the younger people as it were to to take take the conversation somewhere else yeah i think this is a good place i think to start winding up the conversation but i think there's someone that you mention in your book. You mentioned Allen Ginsberg and, and William Blake at one point, and how Ginsberg has yeah. this transcendent mystical experience where he, while reading Blake, and it, he he you talk about this as an example of you know how words are alchemy, how text can transform, and how yeah. we have a kind kind of hermeneutical union was affected between Ginsberg, who was a young aspiring poet, and Blake. Who is a seemingly seemingly dead visionary, and that's that's the reason that I got into writing poetry and and fiction to begin with, and that's I think also the reason why I've uh, g- gradually become more and more attracted to the writings of of people like uh, Gershom Shalom and William James and Eliade. It's it's getting at something very similar: words as alchemy. And these mystical transcendent experiences—it's—it's—it's it's, it's something that I, I re- recognize very, very strongly. So, all yeah, that to say, of course, of course, for Blake, yeah. I mean, of course, for Blake, Blake didn't write poetry like you sit down and think something up. I mean, he did do that, but a lot of his poems came to him. They were literally revealed. He was he was more of a, a New Age channeler than, than a traditional poet. And the scene with Ginsburg you're talking about is very much like that. He's, he's reading the Sunflower poem, and, and it takes on a life, a voice of its own, and speaks to him across the centuries. And he actually has an experience of, of God, really. And he becomes just kind of mystically obsessed after that because he has this opening reading this poem. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could, we could talk all day about that, Daniel, but I'll, I'll shut up. I mean, yes. I mean, language isn't what we think it is. And writing and reading are some of the most profound things that a human being can do. And, and of course, we can turn those into something banal, like reading a cereal box or, or a software catalog or something. But, if we approach reading as a spiritual practice, it it can truly, truly change us in fundamental ways. Yeah. Now, one of my favorite quotes by Carl Sagan is that uh, books break the shackles of time, and a book is proof that humans are capable of working magic. Yeah, he's right. He was right about that. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me, and thank you so much for developing your body of, of writing. I think not not I'm not the only one that that resonates like this, obviously. And so I think from for me and from all your readers, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Let me know if I show up in your dreams. <laughs> You'll be the first to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thank you for listening to Reenchantment. If you have thoughts or feedback on this episode, send me a message by going to reenchantmentpod.com and going to the contacts tab. I respond to every email I get, and I'd love to hear from you. Again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Reenchantment. <laughs>